Hey, in NASCAR, it's a bad thing when you're sliding out of control. I remember watching Daytona back in 2001. Actually, the services were over here on the weekend. We were driving home to Texas, um, and I had Daytona on, and actually, I was supposed to be packing my stuff. I was sort of dragging my feet because I wanted to see the end of Daytona. It was getting close to the final lap, and um, I'm, actually, it was the final lap, and I'm watching as uh, Michael Waltrip is like cruising around to, to, to win the race, and it's a big race for him. But we're in the last lap, and actually the last seconds of the last lap, um, the guy calling the race was, was focused on Michael Waltrip, but he said, oh, something happened. And the camera panned back real quickly, and you could see that there was a little accident. And, and I'll be honest with you, I've seen what I thought were hundreds of worse accidents in NASCAR, but what happened was somebody bumped um, Dale Earnhardt's car as he was like in just finishing the race and he kind of slid out of control and went into the wall and I saw it and I didn't think it was that bad of an accident. In fact, the guy calling the race just finished on talking about Michael Waltrip. Uh, we got in the car and drove to Texas and I didn't think anything more about it till the next morning I was sitting at a Whataburger in, in Fort Worth and I saw the headlines on the Dallas Morning News that the Dale Earnhardt had been killed in that accident. And, and, and I still think about that that experience because I thought it didn't look that bad, but he just slid out of control. Have you ever been in a car that slid out of control? I have. It's a horrible feeling. The thing about life, though, that makes it different in our series shift is what we're going to understand is that sometimes when you as a person slide out of control, as bad as it feels at that moment, and I'm not trying to be negative for anyone who's in that situation today, or I don't want to be loose with that, but sometimes sliding out of control is the best thing that can happen to us. Let, let me just start this, state, this sermon with, with four talks, or four statements rather. And I want you to think about these four statements and just sort of let them marinate as we get into today's talk, okay? Here's the first of the four statements. There are people we call controlling. Fair? I always think about New Spring. We're a very diverse church. We have all kinds of belief systems that we come together with. I mean, there are people at New Spring, and you may be one of them, they're not really sure you believe in God yet. You're just on a faith journey and you're exploring. We have people who are Democrats, people who are Republicans, people who are independents, and people who are in the don't care or don't understand category. So I could ask about all kinds of questions in life. I mean, we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, we have different philosophies of life. Chances are we would probably have a hard time getting a 100% vote on anything here at New Spring, unless I ask the question, how many of you know somebody who is difficult? <laughs> or somebody who's controlling, rather. Chances are we'll probably all know somebody who is controlling, okay? Um, a lot of us have had the term controlling applied to us. Many of us know that. Some of us don't know that. But someone has called us controlling. And the thing about being called controlling is, you know, here's the thing. A lot of times we think about somebody being controlling if they're sort of blustery with it. You know, if they're sort of like full of themselves and it's overt and it's sort of blustery, we're like, yeah, that's a controlling person. But sometimes there are people who are controlling in a kind of sweet, passive kind of way. You know, they're real sugary sweet, but when you get right down to it, they're manipulative and they're controlling. So there are all kinds of controlling people. And that adds up to the second statement that I want us to consider, and that is that more of us are controlling than we want to admit. See, I, I don't want to admit it, but I'm a controlling person too. But the reason why I don't think I'm controlling, it's in a benevolent sort of way. See, I don't want it for me. I want it for other people. I want the world to be right. And I always say to myself, people would just listen to me. I would tell them what to do. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, it's totally benevolent. I don't, I don't get anything out of it. It's just, if people would just listen to me, aren't we the most insufferable of all the controlling people? Yeah. 
And so the truth of the matter is, more of us are controlling than we want to admit. Now, here's the third statement that I want you to consider, and this may be a surprise. You can always trace control issues back to an area of perceived weakness. See, sometimes we think that people are controlling because they feel themselves to be strong, but that isn't true. Strong people don't have to be controlling. Strong people can rely on something else. They can rely on motivation. They can rely on influence. It's, it's people who, who have some sort of perceived area of weakness who feel like they have to be controlling. Maybe they've grown up with anxieties or fears, or maybe they were abused when they were growing up. Perhaps they felt like they were always pushed aside. And so consequently, they will Im- implement control mechanisms and you know, you'll, they'll get married and you'll see a guy that tries to control his wife or a wife who tries to control her husband or parents who try to control their kids, sometimes parents who try to control grown kids. But what you and I need to understand is that people don't have control issues because they feel they're strong. They have control issues because they have some area of perceived weakness. Now, here's the fourth statement that I want you to consider. By the way, let me just go through those three again so that we'll make sure we get them all. There are people we, contr- we call controlling. More of us are controlling than we want to admit. People have control issues because of some area of perceived weakness. And now the fourth statement. People with control issues are always frustrated. I accidentally used the term a moment ago, but here's the thing. People with control issues are oftentimes characterized as difficult people. And what causes them to be difficult is the control issue and the sense of frustration. They're trying to control a marriage, but it's not working. They're trying to control a husband or a wife or kids or people at work, and it never works because I don't know if you've discovered this or not. People don't want to be controlled. (laughs) Have you discovered that? I mean, it doesn't matter how benevolent your control issues are. People just don't want to be controlled. And so consequently, we, we have frustration when we have control issues. Well, for all of us who are attempting to be controlling, which is probably most of us, what we need in our life is a shift. You saw in Todd's baptism, Todd was talking about wanting that in his own life. And and I think that many of us need to follow his example and say, I need a shift in my life. Our series is called Shift. And it's all about people that God shifted into a more advantageous gear. And the shift was so pronounced that God changed names. And we're in the fourth talk of that series. Today, we're going to begin talking about a guy in the Bible. In fact, if you have a Bible with you or a mobile device with a Bible app, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32. And we're just going to begin talking about him because we're going to talk about him today and we're going to talk about him again next week. His name is Jacob. So if you're in Genesis chapter 32, let me just sort of like give you a little backstory to who Jacob is. Um, Jacob was born second in his family. Now, in our Western world, that doesn't mean a whole lot. But in the Eastern world, and specifically, this is the young Jewish nation in those days, there was something called the laws of primogenitor, which meant if you were the oldest kid, you got nearly everything. In fact, in a family with two kids... The rule was the oldest kid got two-thirds and the younger kid got one-third. But being in a Hebrew family, um, Jacob, being second-born, he kind of finished out of the money completely because the older kid would have gotten two things that Jacob wanted. Number one, he would have gotten what was called the birthright, which involved the spiritual leadership of the family and ultimately the lineage of the Messiah. And then the second thing, Uh, was the jack. It was the cash. It was the ability to be blessed. And so the older kid got all of that. So Jacob came in second in a two-man race. But what really shaped Jacob was that 
it wasn't like his older brother was five years older than he was. They were twins. And so like Jacob finished out of the money, not by years, but by seconds. And if that didn't make things bad enough, they were not identical twins. They were, they were fraternal twins. And you know, sometimes fraternal twins can be very different. So the, Jacob's issues were that his older brother not only was the one who should have gotten everything, he sort of like got everything that nature can give you. I mean, when he came out of the womb, he was covered with red hair. I mean, and his name Esau literally means big hairy, big red hairy one. Uh, really true. That's what it means. And, and, um, and, and Esau, throughout his life as he grew, he was a macho guy. I mean, he was kind of like big. He was masculine. He liked hunting and fishing and outdoor living. He had a four-wheel drive jacked up. I mean, he, he, and, and Jacob, on the other hand, came out smooth. And he was what we used to call in the 90s a metrosexual. You know, I, I would, you would have loved to have seen their pictures in the yearbook because they'd have been side by side. They were brothers, and they were born the same year. So, you know, you see Esau's yearbook picture right beside his picture. It's like four years football uh, captain, all district, all state, uh, four years baseball, you know, all district, all state, four years track, four years javelin, hunting club. I mean, that's – besides Jacob's picture is home ec. So you get, you get what I'm trying to say to you? I mean, it's not only that he comes in second and born a twin, but your brother's this big macho guy, and Jacob is a guy, frankly, you know, he's most likely to be found inside the house with his mama watching the cooking channel, the home, or HGTV. So if you're in Jacob's situation, what do you do? Jacob's like, well, you know what? If I'm going to get what I want to get out of life, I am going to have to find some way to get an angle. And so here's and the thing about it is, I should, should tell you this. When the boys were born, Esau came out first. And when Jacob was born, his little hand was around Esau's heel. And that's how he got his name. See, Jacob means dirty tricker. That's true. I'm, I'm telling you, it means one who catches by the heel. See, here, here, here's the way to think about this. If you're out like running, you know, and you like have your foot lifted in running and then somebody comes up behind you or comes out of the grass and grabs you by the heel when you don't see them and trips you, that is what Jacob's name means. And he lived up to it because although he might not have been the big macho guy that his brother Esau was, Jacob was really good at pulling dirty tricks. As someone said, Jacob is the kind of guy that could go in a revolving door behind you and come out in front of you. <laughs> now, we'll talk about him next week more, but here, here's the thing I want to tell you that kind of tells us how Jacob wound up where he wound up. He pulled a couple of dirty tricks on his brother. See, Jacob really wanted both the blessing the, the jack, the cash, and he wanted the birthright deal, that spiritual leadership of the family. It mattered to Jacob. Well, anyway, what happened was, and I'll tell you how this went down. Um, one day, Esau had been out hunting, and you guys know what it's like, and gals, you know what it's like. You've been hunting all day. You're thinking about getting pheasant and getting, getting deer, and you don't think about eating, and all of a sudden, it's like the hungries get you all at one time, and that's what happened to Esau. He came into the house, and Jacob was inside cooking chili, and, and, and he smelled chili with beans, it's in the Bible, I'm telling you. You just have to have the Texas or Kansas translation. And so Esau says to Jacob, man, give me some of your chili. And Jacob's like, uh, what's it worth to you? What do you mean, Jacob? Just give me a bowl of your chili. No, no, what's it worth to you? I don't know what it's worth to me. Just give me chili. 
Well, let me tell you what I will do. I'll give you a bowl of chili, but you got to sell me your birthright. Jacob, I don't care anything about that spiritual jazz. I don't even believe that stuff. Yeah, you can have it. Take my birthright. Give me the chili. And that's how that deal went down. But what did matter to Esau was what happened later. And again, I'm just giving you TMI, but just sort of want you to know what the family was like. Jacob's daddy was a guy named Esau. He was the son of Abraham. Excuse me, Isaac. And so Isaac... Ladies, any of you married to a guy that's kind of like a normal guy till he gets sick? <laughs> Do you know? I mean, like, he gets sick and it's like he pulls the covers up. Oh, I think I'm dying. <laughs> Baby, can you get me some medicine? I don't think I can make it from my chair to the cabinet that's got the medicine. I can see some of you know a guy like that. <laughs> or at least have heard of one. Isaac goes into this vibe, I'm dying. He ain't going to die. He's going to live for years. But he, he calls Esau and says, it's time for me to like confer the blessing, which is the cash. And I'm dying. I don't think I'm going to live very much longer. Tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go hunting and shoot one of those deers and bring it, deer and bring it back. And your mom will spice it up. And I'm going to eat it. And you see, he can't be too sick because he was, knew what he wanted for dinner. Uh, I'm going to eat it and I'm going to bless you. Now, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I should have told you, one of these kids was a daddy's boy and one was a mama's boy. You want to take a crack at which one that was? <clears throat> yeah, daddy, was, daddy loved Esau. Mama loved Jacob. And, 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 her, and Jacob's mama <clears throat> said, we're going to get that for you. And Jacob, like, it never work. My brother doesn't smell like me. He doesn't look like me. He doesn't sound like me. There's no way in the world that I can fool my daddy and make him think that I'm Esau. She said, I promise you, this will work. I'm going to go out and get one of the young goats. You spice stuff upright. People don't know what meat it is. And, and I'm going to cook him up, and I'm bring it in. I'm going to spice it up, and your dad's going to eat it. And he said, well, I don't look like Jacob, smell like Jacob. He said, no problem. I'm going to get you one of Jacob's. I'm going to get you one of his outfits. And, man, Esau must have been something. Because she went out and got goat skin with the, with the hide, the fur, and put duct taped it onto Jacob. <laughs> it's in the Bible. <laughs> sort of. And, you know, because the thing of it is, I don't know, Jacob, I mean, Esau must have smelled like something. I mean, you know, because when he went in there, his dad said, well, it smells like Esau. Jacob smelled like the cologne counter at Nordstrom's. I mean, you know, so he goes in there and, and, and his dad says, well, it sounds like Esau, but smell, it sounds like Jacob, but smells like Esau. And he conferred the blessing on Jacob. Man, when Esau comes back, he is furious about this. He didn't care anything about that birthright, but this is the cash. This is the jack thing. And so he said, I am going to kill my brother. And he meant it. And Jacob knew he was no match for Esau. And about that time, his mama said, I think it's, it's time for you to go spend some time with your uncle Laban up in Syria. Why don't you go up there for like about 20 years? You know, when I think about what happened in Jacob's life, I think about something. Years ago, I bought a house. I bought a house up in Bel Air. It was a nice house. The only thing was it didn't have an irrigation system. And I thought, well, I'll just move the sprinklers around. I found out real quickly I didn't have the time to do that, and especially we had a hot summer. 
So I saved up my money, and I had an irrigation system put in, and a great guy came out, and he did it. And the only thing was he had to trench all through my yard to lay the pipe. And at first I thought, wow, it looks like my yard is completely scarred. It looks like Frankenstein. But he did a good job, and it wasn't long before the sod grew up over. And you wouldn't have been able to have told where the lines were except for one thing. When the guy cut the trenches, he cut down below the sod, and he cut into weeds. And the next thing you know, after I thought everything was fine, I started having weeds that grew up taller than the grass all throughout my yard in the lines. And now I had to deal with those weeds. See, that's what happened to Jacob. Jacob thought, you know what, I'm the fixer. I'm the dirty tricker. I can pull stuff. But what he didn't understand was he cut down into weeds. And that's what happens to you and me when we decide we're going to control. See, here's the thing. God never intended for us to be controlling because... Controlling is like we're getting into the God thing. We're playing God. And hear me out. Nothing will mess you up like trying to get for yourself what God wants to give you. See, God loved Jacob. He wanted to give Jacob everything. But the problem was Jacob was trying to get for himself what God wanted. Do you know what's wrong with religion? Do you know why no religion works? They're all pretty much, I mean, people say all religions are the same. Well, not belief-wise, but when it gets down to one particular area of functionality, all are alike in one regard. Religions all say, this is what you must do in order to be accepted. It's, it's jump through this hoop and you will be accepted. That's the reason why all religions fail, ultimately, because they, it's, it's a person trying to get for themselves what God wants to give you. Nothing will mess you up like trying to get for yourself what God wants to give you. And that's what's happened to Jacob. Well, Jacob is trenched down into weeds because he runs away to Syria, and there he spends some time with his uncle Laban. And a lot of things happen over the next 20 years. For one thing, Jacob falls in love. He falls in love with this beautiful woman named Rachel, who is the daughter of the guy that he works for. (laughs) What the Bible tells us about Rachel is that her name means little doe. You ever see like like a fawn or a doe's eyes? I mean, they're, they're just beautiful. And that's what Rachel means. I mean, she was a beautiful figure. She's a beautiful face. She was just, we would say today, hot, very hot. And Jacob like falls over like a tree. Now listen, does Jacob know how to do a deal? Yeah. Let me tell you how much, he was, how much in love he was. Rachel's daddy said, what do you want your wages to be? You got to tell me what you want to make when we're working for me. He said, I will work seven years for Rachel. He doesn't even wait to hear what his dad, father-in-law, would charge. I will work seven years for Rachel. Can't touch her, can't hold her hand for seven years. I will work seven years. Let me ask you guys, how many of you would work, except keep your hand down to your side? Because it's always bad to lie, and lying in church is not good at all. Just keep your hand down. How many of you guys would have worked seven years for your wife? Can't touch her, can't hold her hand, can't kiss her. Go to work seven years, no money, no pay, just like I am working for this gal. But as I said a little bit a little while ago, Jacob is trenched down into the weeds, and the guy that he's working for is a whole lot like him, and their old saying is what goes around comes around, but that's not as old as the statement the Bible makes when it says we harvest what we plant. You know, Jacob has messed people over, and now it's going to come back to him. So the day comes, he's worked seven years for beautiful Rachel. And they had the big party and the wedding and celebration, but they don't have electric lights like you and I do. It got dark. Jacob went to his tent, waited for his daddy-in-law to bring his new wife to have their wedding night. Jacob can't see. He just figures he's there with Rachel. Wakes up in the next morning at breakfast, looks over the table, and it's not Rachel. It's Leah, her older sister that he spent the night with. 
Now, I don't know how to make this genteel, but the name Leah in the Bible means cow. I don't know. I just know this. The Bible says there was no sparkle. Okay, Rachel had sparkle. Leah didn't have sparkle. And so Jacob goes storming into his father-in-law and saying, what is this deal? I work seven years for Rachel. I wake up in the morning and it's Leah. And his father-in-law said, well, let me tell you, we got a law here in Syria. No, you didn't have this down where you live, but here's the deal. In our world, you can't marry the younger daughter without the older daughter being married. So uh, that's how you got Leah. And if you'll work seven more years for me, I'll give you Rachel. So he has to work seven more years. He has two wives, one he loves, one he doesn't love. And, they, and in the 20 years that pass, and this, making a long story short, he has, by this point, 11 kids. He and his father-in-law have knifed each other in the back, figuratively speaking. They cheated each other for, for years. But Jacob now has a lot of livestock. He's a wealthy guy. He's got two wives and kids. The only problem was things are so toxic with his in-laws. I don't know if I can get a witness on that, somebody here. Things are so toxic with his in-laws, he's got to leave. But he's got a problem going home. He's got a brother who said, last time he saw him, I'm going to kill you. Now, there's the old saying that time heals all wounds and wounds all heals. And I think Jacob was hoping for that. So he goes, and, and I've got to tell you, I'm going to find out who our really, really old people are. Most of you are way too young to know anything I'm talking about. When I was a kid growing up, there was a cartoon on, and there was this cat. There was this really cool cat, but he would get into trouble, and he had this carpet bag, and like whenever he got in trouble, he'd, who am I talking Felix the cat? Yeah, okay. There's a few of you that, well, when, in, in, in back in the 60s, I used to watch cartoons when I was a little kid in the afternoon, and there was this song that went, Felix the cat, Felix the cat, the wonderful, wonderful cat. Whenever he gets in a fix, he reaches into his bag of, you just found out who's over 55, Okay. Jacob has had this bag of tricks that he's reached in, but now he's like in trouble because he can't stay with his in-laws. It's toxic there. And he's afraid to go home because Esau said he would kill him, but it's been 20 years. So Jacob starts like pulling out the last bag, last trick out of his bag. He like gets about five groups of livestock and sends them ahead, separated into groups. And his message to Esau is, this is a present for you. And then there's another present for you. And there's another present for you. And he's hoping that will calm Esau down. Then after that, he puts his, his livestock and then his wife and kids, he sends them across the river Jabbok. And the Bible says this, and this is where I want to get to right now. This is Genesis 32, 24. It just says, so Jacob was left alone. Now, the kind of alone that Jacob is experiencing is not the kind that we experience at the end of the day when we want a little solitude. Jacob is all by himself, and he is having to face who he is. See, one of the concerns that I have is that in our culture today, we have so, much, we have so many diversions that it keeps us from coming face-to-face -face with why our issues are what they are. I mean... Before I left today, we're, we're keeping our little grandson. He's four months old. And the last time I saw him, Mary Alice had given him a pacifier. You know, when Liam had that pacifier in his mouth, a couple things. Number one, he wouldn't get anything out of it. Number two, it kept him busy. And a lot of us are 45, 35, 55 years old, 25 years old. And we have all kinds of electronic pacifiers. Social media. There's nothing wrong with those things necessarily. I'm just saying... A lot of times it keeps us from that alone moment where we face ourselves. Jacob is having one of those moments. 
Now, there are some weird things in the Bible, and this is one of the weirdest that I ever look at. Um, but I want to show you what happened next, because again, Jacob has sent everything over the river, and he's all by himself, and it's night, and Jacob is like hoping that maybe he can like pray and talk to God and find some way to get out of this. Okay, here we go. Genesis 32, verse 24. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. I mean, he's like all by himself, and the next thing you know, somebody jumps him in the dark. Well, if you're Jacob, what are you thinking? It's Esau. You know, the old rabbis had a theory about this. They said it was Jacob's guardian angel that jumped him. Hey, listen, you're a mess if your guardian angel decides, you know what, you're such a screw-up, I'm just going to take you out. <laughs> well, what we know is this is an angel, and we're led to believe that it's a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. So if it is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, why is Jesus jumping Jacob and, and wrestling with him? Now, so much of this, we'll talk maybe about this next week. <clears throat> when the man, that's the angel, saw that he could not overpower him. Do you think that Jacob really could beat this angel? No. Because look at what happens next. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched <clears throat> the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man, the angel, said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, listen, guys, I could bring five talks on that, and I couldn't exhaust it. Let me tell you what happened. <clears throat> Jacob gets jumped in the darkness, and it's not like somebody hits you in the face where you can run away. Wrestling is different. <clears throat> and this angel is wrestling with Jacob, and at first Jacob wants to get away, but something changes while they're wrestling. <clears throat> Jacob begins to sense that this is a God thing, and that this person that he's wrestling with has a blessing in there for him. And so it starts off with Jacob wanting to get away, and then it changes to Jacob saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. See, when you and I slide out of control, we experience something called desperation. You know what I've discovered about desperation? It has an amazing clarifying effect. And Jacob is having that moment. Jacob is saying, to, he, he senses this is, this is some representative of God. He may not know who it is. He's just saying, listen, I have a sense that you're here for some reason, and I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And so that's what the angel was there for in the first place. And so the angel asks him, what is your name? Now, do, you, do you think whoever this angel was, do you think he didn't know Jacob's name? You think he didn't know who Jacob was? He's like angels walking around the earth, see some guy in the darkness, think, man, I think I'll just whip this guy. I don't even know who he is. No. See, in the Hebrew world, <clears throat> there was the belief that names, names were commensurate with character. And, and so in the Hebrew world in these days, you wouldn't ask somebody, if you wanted to know who they were, you wouldn't ask them what their name was. You'd say, who are you? But by asking what is your name? You ready for this? God was asking Jacob, tell me who you really are. My concern is that most of us have not yet come to that moment where we admit who we really are. See, there's a part of us that's for public consumption. It's a facade, and it's protective. It's just human nature to do that. We, we craft an image that we want people to see, but down below that image, there's stuff, there's junk in all of our lives. It's one reason why we've always wanted New Spring to be a safe place to come. See, the thing of it is, deep down inside, there's stuff that we don't let people see and we don't deal with. And God is just saying, look, I, I, I want to know who you really are. And Jacob finally says, 
My name is Dirty Tricks. That is who I am. I am where I am because of who I am. If you made that statement today, I am blank, what would go in that statement? I am difficult. I am dishonest. I am a liar. I am selfish. And here's the thing, Mark, Mark, I didn't go to church to feel condemned. Here's what you must understand. God does not want to condemn Jacob. We're going to see in just a moment God wants to shift him. But in order to liberate Jacob, Jacob has to come face to face with what is causing him the trouble. There's the old story about Frederick the Great, who was touring a prison one day, and of course he was surrounded by security, but he was interacting with the inmates of the prison, and he was asking them what they were there for, and of course, like every prison, they're all innocent. Frederick the Great said, what are you here for? I'm here for murder, but I didn't do it. It was all trumped up, and, and I got sent here, but I'm innocent. So everybody he talked to, he was innocent. Finally, he came to a guy, he said, what are you in here for? Robbery? He said, did you do it? I did it. Well, how long are you in here? For life. Well, do you deserve what you're getting? Deserve every day of my sentence. Frederick the Great turned to the war and said, turn this poor wretch loose. I won't have this wicked man corrupting all these innocent people here. (laughs) Sometimes God has to get us to the moment, and that's one of the reasons why, and I I don't know your situation. I'm not trying to make it light. This is some of the reasons why God has to let us slide out of control, experience desperation, so that when he asks you, who are you, you're desperate enough to say, I am where I am because of who I am, and this is who I am. Now, the cool thing that happens next is look at this. The man, that's the angel said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but, and this is the first time we hear this wonderful name in the Bible, but Israel. Isn't that cool? God's, once Jacob said, I'm dirty tricks, God said, okay, but not anymore. Your name used to be dirty tricks. Now it's going to be Israel, which means prince with God. My buddy Nisam Wernick was rabbi at the synagogue on Northwood Lawn, and we were buddies, for, and we still are buddies. And he's so kind, he's been kind to me. I've spoken a number of times at the synagogue, and, and Nisam told his, his, his congregation, he said, I'll watch Mark on television, and he told he said, here's where you can find Mark. And so we, we just, we've been, and we've hosted some events here. And, and we go to lunch together a lot. And, and um, we're, we're buddies. So one day we were going to lunch a few years back. And Nisam said, well, uh, <clears throat> what are you preaching on? I said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about Jacob's name being changed. And Nisam taught me something there that was like an eye-opening moment for me. He said, well, you understand, and of course, he understands the Hebrew language at a level that I'll never even begin to. He said, you understand, of course, that the name Jacob is associated with the heel. And he said, in the actual literal Hebrew, the name Jacob means attached to the earth. And he said, Israel means attached to God. Man, I had a, I had a breakthrough at Bella Luna that day. <laughs> Do you know why you and I tend to be controlling Because we say this is how the world works. Right? 
You sort of come to church and you have a church moment. You can worship God. That's great. And you hear a talk like this, it's like, well, it's really good. But you go back to your family and it's like, well, you know what? I, the, I, the God stuff doesn't work here in the world. My family's just, and, and you go to work and it's like the God stuff doesn't work here. And the problem is we remain Jacob. We are attached to this world. And so consequently, we have to do what we have to do, we think, in order to get people to capitulate. But God was saying to Jacob, I don't, you don't have to do that anymore. Your name is Israel. You're attached to God. Well, I need to close this up. Could I have just a few extra minutes today? Last week I told you how I hit the wall and kind of had an ex- just, just a time of exhaustion and had to take some time off. And, and during that season, I was just desperately reading the Bible, and God showed me something in the Bible that changed my life. Because here's the thing. I know what I'm saying. To, I know what some of you are saying back to me today. You're saying, Mark, if I quit trying to be controlling, my husband will just go off the rails. It's my controlling nature that keeps him somewhat in line. If I, if, if I, if I stop being controlling, I, I don't know what will happen. If I stop being controlling, I don't know what will happen with my kids. I have to be controlling. Really? Let me tell you a real quick story. There was a guy, and this, I read this when I was really going through a tough time. There, and I think it was God's way of saying, Mark, this is your problem. There was a king named um, Ahaziah. Amaziah, excuse me. And he was, the Bible says he's sort of up and down in his relationship with God. But Amaziah knew he needed to go to battle, and he hired a bunch of mercenaries. And I, I checked this out with the price of silver this week when I wrote this talk. He paid these mercenaries two and a quarter million dollars. And the prophet of God came along and said, the mercenary idea is not going to fly with God. Read it with me. A man of God came to him and said, your majesty, do not hire troops. If you let them go with your troops into battle, you'll be defeated by the enemy no matter how well you fight. God will overthrow you, for he has the power to help you or trip you up. Amaziah asked a question that you and I would ask. But what about all that silver that I paid to hire the army? And this is what God said that changed my life. And I love this verse for six years, and I hope you come to love it right now too, for all of you who would say, if I let go of control, I'm going to lose. Listen to this. The Lord is able to give you much more than this. For all of us who are controlling, and we've had an experience in which we've slid out of control, and we think it's the end. It could be a Jacob moment. It could be a moment where God is saying, hey, I want to I reconnect you, not to the earth, but to heaven. Because you know what happened when Esau finally came to meet Jacob? The Bible says Esau ran up and embraced him and held him tight and kissed him, and they both wept. Like I said, could I have a couple extra minutes today, maybe three? In all the years of pastoring, there are so many stories of people that I've had the opportunity to watch their lives change. In 32 years here at New Spring and 40 years of pastoring, it's like a museum sometimes. And I'll walk the halls of that museum and I'll walk from one wing to another and the stories and the people, they, they sort of come to life as once again I hear stories from people and I got to be there. One of my favorites, and I probably told you this before, but I just love this story so much. I should tell you, I have an antique in my office. I love Lincoln, and a lot of people have given me Lincoln stuff, but I have one antique that's worth more than all the rest of them probably put together. It is a portrait of Lincoln and circa 18, in the 1860s. And so it's quite, quite a nice piece. But I don't 
love it because it's valuable in that way. There's a story that goes with it. There was a man who was in his early 30s, big six-figure income, but so successful in his business, he only worked six months out of the year. He's a nice-looking guy, didn't have any trouble getting a date. He had the cars, the boats. He was successful in his business. They loved him where he worked. He didn't even have to work all that hard. I mean, he had everything that life had to offer. And he was driving around not far from our campus, and he also had something else. He had a 357 Magnum that was loaded and lying beside him on the seat. And in those days, there wasn't too much development out here, and he was trying to drive to a place that was isolated enough that he could put the 357 in his mouth and pull the trigger. But our God is, is an interesting person, isn't he? In those days, we had a radio broadcast that was on daily that were just archived old messages that I'd preached. And for just some reason, he decided to turn on the radio. And he just so happened that it turned on the station where I was speaking. It was a, I'd done a series on the Holy Spirit 20 years ago, I guess. And in the message, I was just talking about why God gave us the Holy Spirit. It was an in-reach message. It wasn't an outreach message. I was just saying, God gave us the Holy Spirit to let us know that we can't do it by ourselves. We can't live life by ourselves. And he started listening to that message. And he stopped his car and he listened to the whole message. And he decided that when he got through, he was going to try to contact our church wherever it was in the country. But to his amazement, he discovered that we were local. And not only were we local, we were just a mile or so from where he was. On his cell phone, he called our campus and got a hold of one of the women at our desk. <laughs> his question that he asked was, is this the church with the pastor who says you can't live life by yourself? <laughs> she said, well, it sounds like my pastor. He said, do you think there's any chance he would see me? She said, I don't know. I'll try to call him. Another God thing, I happened to just be a few minutes away from the campus, and I didn't, I had a block, open block in my schedule, so I said, yeah, I'll see him. And I drove, and it wasn't the same office I have today, but it was pretty close to where my office is. I still remember like yesterday, as he told me his story, and I shared Jesus with him. And I can still remember as we got down on the rug and on our knees beside my coffee table in my office, and I held his hand, and I heard him pray and invite Jesus Christ into his life. And he was baptized like you saw some here today. And he moved to Illinois. His business took him there. But before he left, he wanted to bring by that antique. He said, I know you love Lincoln so much. He said, I just want to bring you this. He said, I bought it in, in an antiques auction. He said, I want you to have it. And he said, every time you look at it, I want you to remember the guy who asked, is this the preacher who said you can't live life by yourself? You can't, you know. You can't. You weren't made to. And all the controlling that you and I try to do to get other people to do what we want them to do is just going to make us frustrated and difficult. And we weren't designed for that. You were designed to slide out of control and into the arms of God in which you can tell them, this is who I am, and let him tell you, well, not anymore. Because now that you've been honest about who you are and you've come to me, you're going to be a different person. And you're not attached to the earth anymore. You're attached to God. Would you bow your head with me? And thank you for letting me go into overtime. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I'm not even sure I have a relationship with God. Well, the good news is he just is waiting for you. 
He's already made a way. See, religion says jump through the hoops, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God loves you. And Jesus came into our world. He lived the life that you can't live. 33 years, ran the table, never did anything wrong. And then laid that life on a Roman cross. And the way God saw it, the blood that came out of his body is a currency that pays for everything you've ever done wrong. So that right now, God is able to put a deal on the table. It's time sensitive, but it's a deal. And the deal goes like this. If you will come to him and be honest about who you are and admit that you can't live life by yourself and invite Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, that God will forgive you of every sin and adopt you as his daughter, adopt you as his son, and give you everlasting life. If you like that deal, I've never found a better one. And all you have to do is ask. And tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer with you. And I'm going to pray it slowly. You can, you can sort of think about the line side if you want to say it to God. Okay, ready? Here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I can't do it by myself. I need you. I want Jesus to be my savior and I want him to be my king. Thank you for forgiving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that prayer with me, it's like, Mark, I'm not sure what happened. South Auditorium and North Auditorium, when you go out, there's a guest services. All you gotta do is take your talk to us card, check the box that says, I pray with Mark. In this bag is a gift for you. There's a Bible just like I use when I preach. There's a DVD and also a book I wrote. I just want to give this to you. Nobody will ask you. Just go back and say, I pray with Mark. Thanks for being here. We'll pick this story up next week.